as it puts a spotlight on something we might take for granted as easy, choosing a business partner. I think Troy shares an important reality check for entrepreneurs who have business partners or are considering bringing on a partner, family or outside partner. It's important to get the right people, whether they are shareholders working in the business or passive, establishing a board of advisors and an exit door if things go wrong. Enjoy my conversation about avoiding business partnership pitfalls with Troy Truen. Troy Truen, it is a joy to be with you. We are talking to each other from literally the other side of the world. You are the first person to be on my show from Tasmania, which is a very, very cool thing to be talking with you. We met recently, not too long ago, because of your show. And I was excited to be on your podcast. It's a great show. You'll talk more about it, I'm sure. And I want to encourage everyone to give your show a listen. So first off, let me welcome you to Succession Stories. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, Laurie. Really looking forward to it. And particularly the topics we're going to talk about today, choosing the right business partners and also touching on family businesses. I've got a bit of experience there, but just want to point out to the audience, Tasmania is a small island just south of Melbourne in Australia. Obviously, Australia is a big island. But when I travel internationally, often Tasmanians will introduce themselves from Tasmania, not from Australia. And then people think we're from Tanzania, not Australia. So we often get confused where in the world we are. But it is definitely either end of the day here, evening for you and early morning for me. Yeah, and it's a very beautiful place. So if people aren't familiar with that part of the world, encourage them to take a look at at YouTube and, and check out some videos and do some virtual travel. So let's start with you. You are an entrepreneur through and through. You have extensive experience in starting companies, growing companies, and tell us a little bit about you and that journey. Yeah, I started in business late 1999. So went to university, did two degrees, uh, got a bachelor in business, majoring in accounting and a bachelor of computing, and then worked for a big firm for three years straight out of uni. The only real job I've ever had, as I like to say, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. So one of the biggest professional services firm in, in the world. And, but I always knew that I wanted to run my own businesses. My parents grew a small fuel business into a medium-sized distribution business. I've actually had my father on the podcast and I learned a lot interviewing dad on the cast. I didn't realize he took as many risks, probably more risks than I've taken. He's a very quiet person. But so watching them do that, I guess running a business was in my blood. My first business was a lawn mowing business. I think I was age 12. And quite proudly, last year, my then eight-year-old daughter asked uh, when she started her first business selling lollies if she was the youngest in the family. And I said, I'll have to check with Pop because I was 12, but I'm pretty sure he was older than me. So, yes, I think you've got the, the, the title for the youngest in the family. So There is so an like, entrepreneurial gene. I you think it is, it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I always knew that I, I want to run my own businesses, but I knew the value of working for in a big, large organization as well because I was going to learn from that, but also having that brand as well. PricewaterhouseCoopers is well-renowned, but it was really hard, Laurie, right at the end, you know, itching to get out and, and start my own thing. So uh, in my typical style, I quit late 99, started two internet companies at once. I was working 100-hour weeks, sleeping under my desk. We were in the warehouse. We had a, a gift e-tailer. I had a, a Greek business partner in Melbourne that had two big warehouses, lovely Greek family. And like warehouse shops. And uh, I brought the online element to that. And at the same time, 
as I like to analogize in the mining rushes around the world, most people made the money out of selling the pans or the, the pubs and, you know, not actually panning for gold. So I went panning for gold with the e-tailer as well as selling the shovels and the picks, which was a web design development company, which is still going and growing now. So we've got offices in Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Adelaide and Bali. And from there, we, uh, we just kept starting or acquiring technology companies we had a fruit and vegetable delivery business in melbourne that we acquired and that didn't go so well had a few failures along the way had to shut a few down or sell them off and then moved to london in 2007 to buy into a small it support company with two business partners and grew that pretty quickly so we got to about 20 team members in a bit over three years before i moved back to australia and and then got into the distilling industry managed the new zealand whiskey collection from here from tasmania but i was in new zealand every three months so a good friend of mine had found the last 443 barrels of New Zealand whiskey. Some of those were 30 years old, which makes New Zealand only the fourth country in the world to have a 30-year-old single malt. So I ran that for about nine years. Had a sabbatical for a couple of years to run a family business here in Tasmania, another distilling business as the family sold out. And the founder of that, Bill Lark, is known as the, the godfather of Australian whiskey, basically. So they sold to some investors. I was the first CEO into that business. I didn't have any shares, but I grew that for a couple of years, cleaned that business up, and then went back to New Zealand whiskey and did a management buyout. And that Lark distilling business is now listed on the ASX. It's worth about a quarter of a billion dollars on the market cap. And that was a really interesting time, a couple of years, managing that family business. And more recently, I've been working with other businesses. So I currently sit on five boards. I chair three of those boards. Last year, I finished up chairing another board, which is a family business, uh, which I'd love to speak about in a moment. So a few other businesses thrown in there. And and yes, of course, we had you on our podcast not long ago, which will be live by the time this is live. So late May 2020. And that was a great cast. I really appreciate you coming on that every twice a week, we have a cast go live talking with business owners that have experience growing a a small business. There's so much experience that you have, Troy. I mean, just to pick out a few things, because we only have so much time together. But I know when we talked ahead of time, there were a couple of things that jumped out at me that I thought would be really instructive for our audience, for my audience, and people listening who certainly could learn a lot from you on the growth of entrepreneurial fast-growing company. But one of the areas that I thought we could spend a little bit of time on is partnerships. I haven't yet really dove into that with folks who've come on the show. Some people have talked about co-founding with their spouse. Others have siblings that are co-owners. I think in your experience, mostly these are people unrelated to you, correct? Mostly. I mean, I've had 29 business partners. That's not shareholders, that's business partners that have worked in businesses with me across 15 businesses in three countries. So yeah, I've seen a lot, Laurie. It's been an interesting journey. And if I could go back to day one and tell myself, there's a lot I'd be sharing with myself about choosing the right business partners. And also the other businesses I've managed, not had equity and just seeing the wrong business partners there. It can really destroy value in a business, just go sideways. So the five boards I sit on is a good example. I often write about this in my weekly leadership email when I see examples in business A that is dysfunctional because of the shareholder infighting compared to business B, another board I sit on, where the shareholders are all aligned with the founder. And so it's just so important to, to get 
that first piece of recruitment, recruitment is the most important thing a manager does, I believe. And that first recruitment is getting the right business partners, whether they're passive shareholders or active in the business, getting that right, because that can really distract you from doing what adds value and, and creates wealth. So maybe let's just paint some scenarios that you have 29 business partners, they're all different scenarios. If we were going to describe them at a high level, is one scenario where you've chosen and selected these business partners together and from the very beginning, another scenario is maybe bringing in partners over some period of time after the business has been in operation, and then maybe there's a third scenario. Help me understand just uh, broad strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd like to point out that a big part of this has been my development journey as well. So I'm, I'm a much better person and, and manager of people, and that includes business partners now than I was 23 years ago when I started. So I've really learned a lot and I've got a drive for continual learning, which I think all business owners need to have, but it's also the emotional intelligence, the communication style, understanding people. But fundamentally, you've got to, you've got to come back to getting those right people. They've got to have the right, the same work ethic as you and the same values. And that's been a problem in some of these businesses is the work ethic hasn't been there for some people. And that if you can't communicate about that issue in a professional way, that can really fester and blow up. And then the whole you know, thing falls apart. Specific examples, there was one family business. My brother and I helped my mother, the land we grew up on in country Victoria, just in north of Melbourne, we divided, uh, subdivided our block of land we grew up. So 27 blocks of land. So that was really the first family business. It was my own family that I had to work with. And mum was quite a difficult person, but she raised us quite well. Both my brother and I are hardworking, driven. My brother's a plumber, but that was an interesting dynamic, more around the family dynamics with our mother than it was the typical issues you get with, I think, in a family business of, you know, my brother and I fighting. We, we got along really well. So that's one example, I think. If I can touch on choosing the right business partners, it's... It, again, like recruitment, you've got to spend as much time with a potential business partner before you can really assess and let your gut tell you, is this the right fit for me? And again, the work ethic, the, the value alignment is really, really important. And also in all businesses, something I didn't do early on and a lot of businesses that I coach and work with haven't done is make sure you've got a rock solid shareholders agreement in place because that solidifies the understanding of all the people in the business uh, they're investing their time or money in case anything goes wrong and again it stops the distractions and the, and the infighting yeah the fit is certainly a good thing for us to talk about here when your business partners are your family you don't really have a choice right in that situation no. with your mom and your brother now maybe it was a good fit in some respects and maybe not in others but you've you didn't have a choice. They were your they were your business partners. And these other scenarios in the companies when you've gotten to choose who your business partners were, what were some of the things you mentioned work ethic, you mentioned value alignment. Where did you find a disconnect with some of the business partners that you've had? And hindsight being 2020, when you can look yep. back and say, wow, I really made a bad choice with working, you know, you don't have to name names, of course. No. <laughs> we'll protect the innocent. But yeah. um, you know, looking back and you'd say, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't have chose this person or that person because. One good example is a business partner that I just over time kind of fell out with because I just didn't like some of the things, the small things he did and said that just irked me and really were against my own personal values. 
And over time that built up and, you know, and, and this is early on in my career, business career. So I wasn't, uh, I guess, equipped with the emotional intelligence or the communication tools to be able to work through those issues, but probably fundamentally, this person just isn't on, wasn't on the same page as I was. So again, doing as much research about a person, spend as time with them socially as well to make sure that your gut's telling you that this is someone you can work with. There's a great example I've, I've spoken about on our podcast a couple of times where a CEO of a high Fortune 500 company in the US, when he's down to his last two candidates, he'll take them out to his local diner, just one-on-one. When he's got to make that final decision, it might be down to two people, two or three people. And the owner of the diner, he knows him very well, and he knows to stuff up the food order of the the candidate because the CEO wants to see how that person responds to that error and that mistakes and the wait staff as well. And that's another you know good indicator. So I think spending as much time around people before you either hire them in the business or take them on board as business partners or shareholders, because passive shareholders, those not working in the business can also be value destroying and distracting. So you've really got to pick the right team. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stonyhill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. How have you found the team? Are these people that have been introduced to you? Or are they people that you've gone business to business and taken some folks with you along the way? In the last 10 years, it's more about building a bench. So having a good network of people. A good example of this is a business we launched two years ago called the Distillers Institute, which is an online course for people thinking of starting a distilling business in Australia. We focus on the business side, so business plan, marketing plan, financial model, not on the technical side of how to make great spirit. And a friend of mine ran an in-person training course in the distilling industry, and she was frustrated with the you know logistics of organising people coming to Tasmania, et cetera. And I said, well, just just do a pivot to online. Uh, a few months later, she came back and she still hadn't done it. And I said, well, just do a test, you know. So she threw a test up. It went well. Came back, had another coffee. She said, oh, I just can't do it on my own. I said, all right, well, I'll jump in. But I think we need some other people uh, to help us because of to pad out the the experience that we need in this business. And that's another important point when you're picking business partners. Those are going to be working alongside you. Make sure you pick people that have different strengths and experiences to yourself um, for the to cover the corners of the business. So then I uh, suggested to Anne that we uh, get Brett, another local business owner here, who's been also been a good friend of mine for years. And I'd obviously known both these people for many years and knew their values and, and liked them and their work ethic was aligned. So we got Brett in, he's big on marketing. And then the final business partner I suggested we bring in was Ian in Melbourne. He's worked for one of the biggest distilleries in Australia. Uh, one of the startup ones about 12, 13 years ago. Again, knew Ian, knew his values, really nice people. And and I notice it when I step into a meeting, whether it's a meeting I don't have any equity in, I chair the board or one that I do, that I love working with those people. So are there any mechanical lessons learned that you can share? One of the ones that's a classic is to not have a 50-50 equity split, right? So yeah. that there's an impasse on big decisions, something like that from, that's what I mean by mechanical. Is there anything yeah. about a partnership agreement where again, maybe it didn't go in the favor that you would have liked. So you've learned from it and you want to yeah. share with the audience of things to think about if they're considering 
bringing on a partner or starting a business with a partner? Yeah, that's a good point. So the, the, the 50-50 is an interesting one. I don't always believe it should be 50-50, particularly if one business partner started the business, there's already some value in there, then they should have more than 50%. Uh, the mechanism is if it is 50-50, often obviously in your shareholders agreement, you've got to clearly show how that will be worked through. But if you have a formal board um, of directors, then often the chairperson will get an extra vote. And a good example here, uh, a, a brewery that I chair the board of, there's three independents on the board. So we don't work in the business. We don't own any shares. We've got six shareholders, three majors, three minors. And that's a great mechanism there to show that um, we get to make decisions made fast, but we rarely formally put anything to a vote because it is my job to read the room, read the issues first, um, have a good working relationship with my other two co-independent directors. And then uh, I don't think actually we've ever put anything to a vote. It has been, you know, getting their opinions, working through those and then and having our egos in check to, to always put the business first and say, yes, this is the best decision for the business. But with a 50-50 um, split, I would recommend having a board and having that chair that has the extra vote that can break the deadlock. Um, interesting you say on the, on the equity split. So the distillers institute that I mentioned before, that's not even, that's uh, 40, 30, 20, 10. I've got 30%, Anne's got 40, um, because she'd brought a lot of value over from her existing business and it was important to her that she had the majority share. So there are other three of us, we talked through it again, getting better at communication and understanding her point of view. We, we agreed that's fine. You know, we don't have to be 25% each and that's worked really well. Everyone's happy, but I will add a point to that. I was very clear upfront because I've been burnt with this before. Again, back to the work ethic, people not putting in their time. So, you know, it's top of our agenda. We meet every two weeks for 30 minutes and not every meeting, but I'll, I'll raise it and say, how are people going, contributing their time proportional to their shareholding? Because Anne has to do about a day a week and I have to do about five hours a week. Um, not asking them to track their time. I mean, I track my time, but that's for, for my purposes. And that just keeps reminding people and holding them to account. Because that's a big issue I've seen, the work ethic, people not putting in the work, or even just the perception that they're not putting in the work may not be the reality. So again, comes back to that communication. So I'd encourage listeners, if you've got existing business partners you're not getting along with, then do some development on yourself for a start with emotional intelligence and clearly communicating and effectively communicating with people, which will also help you as a manager in your business as well. Well, that's that's really the point. If if the roles aren't clear, if we're not aligned on what people's roles are, there's going to be a disconnect because we might expect partner A is operational when partner A thinks, no, I'm not. I'm a silent partner. Yeah. <laughs> and so at what level does this happen on role alignment? Is it prior to the partner agreement being signed? Yeah, well, again, it's choosing the right people that are going to hold a corner of the business. So there's not two business partners in one corner. And another good point to make, I think, is to have the job descriptions drawn up before you start the business to say who's going to do what, who's going to own which corners. Uh, and, and one of my favorite books, or my favorite book is The E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber. Um, and he talks very clearly about that, getting those roles drawn up, talks about two brothers in, in the book is the example he gives. And they're all over the place because no one knows who to go to for a decision. They're crossing over. There's a lot of time wasting. People are getting frustrated. And so then they draw up the job, the org chart and the job descriptions, and it's very clear who owns what. Have you been in partnerships where there are silent partners? They don't want to be part of the day-to-day. -day? And how does that tend to turn out over time in your experience? Are there people who, who are more active operationally that might resent 
the other owners from having having a say. And and I guess the, the real question is about governance of the organization. Exactly. I mean, that's you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's about governance. And yes, I've had a couple of stark examples where shareholders have worked in the business and there's always that risk that operationally they're a Muppet and they, they can't do their job. So you've got to be very clear on how that can be handled. Uh, and I've seen a couple of examples of that go poorly. Um, so you've got to have that good corporate governance. So a strong board and a very good leader of the day-to-day business, whether that's a CEO or GM or MD, and you've got to give them the authority to make those decisions and, and those lines of separations of duty. So shareholders appoint a board, board appoints a chair often, sometimes the shareholders appoint the chair, and then the board appoints that day-to-day leader. And then you've got to, the board has to stay out of the way operationally and let the leader make the decisions. Um, and that can include firing a shareholder and, and being able to then talk to the other shareholders or that shareholder and say, well, it's a management decision. And that includes the board. If it's a shareholder, it's a big um, HR issue that the board would be involved in a shareholder exit operationally. So I, I think that's a great point is that getting that governance right, it just takes a lot of the um, emotions out of uh, decision-making, which I've seen in a couple of businesses with all the shareholders are on the board. It's ridiculous. It, it can just it, you know d- distract and delay and the business goes sideways. It can be really tricky in a family business too. I've, I've talked to some people there where they've shared stories of, yeah, I had to fire my father. <laughs> They're just not a fit for the organization yeah. anymore. So yeah, let's bring it back to the family business transitions and your experience. Maybe do you think of a, a, some case studies where there was a challenging situation that you had uh, gotten involved with and how did it resolve? Yeah, there's two good examples here. So one more recently, uh, last year, they, they um, stopped using a board, but I was chairing the biggest bricklaying firm here in Tasmania. So about 120 team members. Um, They also had a carpentry business within that and they've got a development business. So they're building a lot of social houses. And this is an English couple that started the business a couple of decades ago and their five sons work in the business. And I thought, right, this is going to be a challenge. Um, But I got in there. They're all lovely people. Their egos are in check. They want to learn, develop and be better and they want the business to be better. So, and obviously there's big age gap between the youngest and the eldest son. So I thought there might be some, some issues around that. The way they were paying their, their sons as well, I felt was, was unfair because it was all on the same wage. And I said, well, that's, we just need to pay market wages for each role. So we ironed out a few of those issues, but they were a great family to work with. And the, the parents all very um, hardworking, the whole seven of them, but the parents were, were great role models and as both business leaders, obviously as parents. So that business, that family business went, uh, was a surprise to me, it went a lot better than I thought it would. Another one that I managed for a while had a lot of, uh, it'd been around for quite a, over a decade and had some managers in the business that just weren't up to going to the next chapter. And so that was very difficult for me to have to move on some of those people because the family was so invested in those relationships. You know, they, they, these people almost felt like family to the family. And they had a couple of their children working in the business as well who weren't a good fit for the business. So again, very, very tricky. But the way we got through that was through strong corporate governance. I had an excellent chair. I had great shareholders and a board and had that support. And importantly, I had the authority to make the decisions because my job is as as, um, CEO, 
uh, or you know, managing director is to put the business first. Not one shareholder, not one family member is what is best for the business. And if this person can't do their role, whether they're family member or not, I have to move them on. Yeah, some companies in the in the states is pretty common to not have uh, advisory board until you get to a certain size, and and to not have a fiduciary board until you get to a certain size of revenue. Most commonly is is one measure, whether it's forty million in revenue or seventy million. There's some statistics out there, but it tends to be larger companies. These companies that you're describing, the family business with five sons and the others. What types of, and you were talking not US dollars, but in your currency, but whatever the, those parameters are that you would say is most common that you see? Most common, I would say, we're talking, I'll talk top line, try and quickly, if I've had enough coffee this morning, convert it to US dollars. I would say between the two and $10 million revenue mark, you know, there's some outliers there, like I mentioned before, Lark de Sillings listed, that's market cap's a quarter of a billion dollars now. Um, so it is it is that good range but even under two million dollars i strongly recommend people especially family businesses get an advisory board around them they don't have to be a fiduciary board member so registered as a director per se but it's having those people that will challenge your thinking and your decision making ultimately it's the the owners call on on those issues what they need to do but to get different perspectives and sometimes to be held account as well if if you're you know you're acting out of line to have advisors pull you up because they've got no connection to the business apart from helping you be better and the business be better. So I highly recommend getting an advisory board around. And then when the business does grow up, you know, even over the $2 million mark, not, not far over the $2 million mark to get those fiduciary directors because it does change your decision-making. As an advisor, you can say, I would do this or have you thought about this? Um, whereas if you're a fiduciary director, your ass is on the line, you could go to jail. If you go bankrupt or if there's a work safety issue, issue and someone injures themselves at work, you could go to jail. So it crystallizes those conversations and those decisions because you're more invested in that decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a really insightful conversation. I really appreciate you being with me. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to add? My favorite quote, I think. Well, of course, I'm always leading into the favorite quote. Yeah. Is there something that inspires you? Something. Uh, well, I thought about this before and I thought, oh, look, I've got a big document keeping all, a lot of business quotes, but I thought, no, I'll use the one I've got printed. It's here on my desk because obviously that's a good sign that it's my favorite. So the, the secret of success is constancy of purpose. And that's Benjamin Disraeli, one of the ex-British prime ministers. And I believe that's there's two great points in there, which is both constancy and purpose. So knowing what your purpose is, mine is to help small business owners grow with less stress because I've got a lot of experience and I've made a lot of mistakes and I don't want other business owners to make those same mistakes or you know, for them to get into debt or relationship issues, which is a lot of things that are hidden to business owners when they start because they're all excited about being in business and having the freedom to work uh, the hours whenever you want. You can work those 80 hours whenever you want. Um, the other one's constancy is just being consistent, turning up every day and, and marching towards that purpose. I love it. That's a great quote. Troy, if people want to find you, connect with you, what's a great way to do that? Just go to our website, growasmallbusiness.com. And uh, from there, you can get through to our, our Facebook, LinkedIn. My personal LinkedIn is you just search my name. It's unique. So Troy uh, Truin, T-R-E-W-I-N, and reach out on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, that'd, that'd be great. That's great. Troy, thank you so much for being with me today, being on the show. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. 
Thanks, Lori. Really appreciate it. And to all our listeners, tune in for more succession stories wherever you find your podcast and find us also follow us on YouTube. We will be back next week with more succession stories for you to capture value and transition with success. Thanks so much for tuning in. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.